week, the Bible's Literature Podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for the morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Self-appointed apologists are quick to explain that God may allow bad things to happen, but he in no way causes them. So the apologist assesses God's will from a human point of view and then decides that it is wrong, concluding that God obviously could not have meant what he said and did in the story. This way of thinking not only sidelines God in Scripture, but stretches the self in self-appointed to encompass the bald-faced idolatry of self-referentiality. Does the clay ask the potter, what are you making? On what basis can any human being question God's judgment? Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew chapter 27, verses 45 to 46. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 417 of the Bible as Literature podcast. In our adult education program at St. Elizabeth, we have been working through 1 Samuel. And this weekend, I explained to the parish the importance of the Ark of the Covenant as the protagonist and the main actor in 1 Samuel. This is so important. It's such a foundational principle, not just for that story, but for the scriptural storyline, to understand always that God is the main actor in the story. In the case of 1 Samuel, if you do not realize this fact, you imagine that the Philistines stole the ark (laughs) and that they gave it back or you imagine that the people of Israel were protecting the ark, and then you fall in the big trap of imagining they needed to build a temple and choose a king. And then you're just like Steven Spielberg and the people in the story, you think the Ark of the Covenant is a talisman with magic tricks. Well, that's not the case at all. The point is the ark doesn't need a temple, and it doesn't need the people of Israel. It can school the Philistines on its own, and in fact, they got the message from the Ark of the Covenant, because it's a teaching. It's a box that contains a teaching. And the teaching is itself the main actor in the story of the teaching. Now, in the broader context of the biblical storyline, We fall in the same trap. We pretend or we imagine 
that it was the Babylonian king who sacked Jerusalem and led the people away into captivity. No. And then we say that God allowed it to happen. No. It is God who destroyed Jerusalem and sent his people into exile in the story. This is so important. We make God into a tertiary bit player in the story. And then you end up with fundamentalism and all kinds of isms that result in terrible things in the real world and idiotic interpretations of Scripture that cause bloodshed. Because you really think that one Samuel is about a conflict between two peoples, and you refer to it as an historical writing, which it isn't. It's a parable. It's a parable. It's mashalik. It's a collection of parables about the folly of the people of Israel in the story giving up on the Ark of the Covenant, which was protecting them and seeking instead a king, like all the other nations, to protect the Ark. <laughs> it's a big joke, and it's definitely functional here in the Gospel of Matthew. But here's the trap. When people talk about the crucifixion of Jesus in the New Testament, they play the same game. They sideline Elohim to justify their human ethics and their human sense of morality, which has a reference for good and evil that has nothing to do with Scripture. And they say, God didn't crucify his son. He allowed his son to be crucified. And it's pretty clear in the Lord's invocation of the Psalter, that that's not the case in the Gospel of Matthew. This agency of God is something that, for some reason, causes a lot of people a lot of consternation, I think, because they have an assumption of what God is supposed to do and how God is supposed to be and what God is supposed to do, which is exactly why God reminds the listener to Scripture my ways are above your ways and my plans are above your plans. You can't figure God out. You can't. Seeing the hand of God making things happen. In Scripture, the hand, the yad of the Lord, is power. That is what makes things happen. How did the Red Sea split? Because of the right hand of God. Now, do people want to say that maybe there was a big wind and an earthquake and it all just happened at the same time? Could be. Could be. Let's ask an ancient meteorologist. According to Scripture, it was the Lord's hand. So whatever your meteorologist says, it's either going to confirm or undermine what Scripture is saying. Archaeologists can show that there was a destruction of Jerusalem. And we have writings in Babylonia around this time talking about this destruction. And archaeologists can show that Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem. However, that can only 
confirm or undermine what Scripture says, which is that the Lord destroyed Jerusalem, but he happened to use the Babylonians to do so. I've been doing a lot of work in Joel. And in Joel, the locusts destroy the fields, and it ends up that there is no food, no grain, no wine in order to offer the grain and wine offerings in the temple. Was that the fault of the locusts, or was that the fault of the Lord? I don't know. But I do know it says, not the day of the locusts is near. It says the day of the Lord is near. The Lord is the one who acts. Now, I was just reading recently a commentator who was looking at a history of scholarship about Joel, and you see these scholars at the beginning of the 20th century, in the middle of the 20th century, trying to separate out what is the natural and what is the supernatural that's going on in Joel. Of course, this does violence to the text, because the text doesn't tell you what was natural and what was supernatural. It all is assuming it's coming from the same source. I think it's interesting that the early Christians saw a parallel between the Ark of the Covenant and the Theotokos, because the Ark of the Covenant is the thing that held, like you said, it was a box that held the law, it held the word inside, and we have the Theotokos who then gives birth to Jesus. Now, this is not scriptural, but it's somebody reading scripture and seeing these kinds of parallels. In some places, you see that the cave where Jesus is buried is also the tabernacle because it holds the word, but like the Ark of the Covenant, the word functions on its own because of the right hand of God. It is always because of the right hand of God. And the old trope that some people probably still think about, hopefully this idea is dead, that it was the Jews who killed Jesus by wanting him to be crucified and all this kind of thing. According to Scripture, God gave his son to be crucified. God the Father gave him this cup to drink. There are two cups, as you pointed out, Richard. There's the cup that Elohim offered, and there's the cup that the ministers of the temple and of the government offered him. One of them was filled with bitter wine, representing earthly kingship, and the other one, which came from God, was the cup of crucifixion. The crucifixion comes from God himself. It's his will. That's what this whole difficult passage is about. And then I have to go to a discussion at a church education class where somebody who's apologizing for God is trying to explain, no, 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 that's not really what the text is saying. God would never do that. He's from Minnesota. He's much nicer than that. He just allowed it so that we could learn and grow. No, he didn't allow it. He's the Godfather. If it happened on his watch, he's the guy pulling the strings. I don't know how else to say it, Rich. I had a Bible study that I was teaching, and someone said, well, I can't believe that God would allow you know, my friend to get sick and die. And I'm like, then I don't know who allowed it. <laughs> like, if if God wasn't the one whose will was done, 
then whose will was done? Because maybe we should be reading that scripture, because evidently that one's more powerful than the Bible we're reading, where it seems like God's in control of everything, including the creation itself. This is the thing. Somebody who wants, a scholar who wants to distinguish what is natural and what is supernatural. Help me understand this in Genesis 1. Where's the natural and where's the supernatural? It seems like God kind of did everything since God was the only one around. Now, did he set the natural in motion and then take a step back? I don't know. That's not in Scripture. It's not germane to Scripture, so it's not a question I spend too much time on. But to say that God is not engaged to make his will happen, it goes against Scripture. So we do have to deal with the fact that we can't blame a bunch of ignorant people who wanted Jesus to be crucified because God was the one who foretold it and God was the one who made it happen. God knew ahead of time it was going to happen and God knew when it was going to happen. And that's what we see in Scripture. It's happening, like you said, Father, on his watch. It's under his purview and he doesn't just allow it. He owns it and he does it. It is his will being done. You don't want to accept that it is his will. Because according to your system of right and wrong, which you apply to yourself because you are your own reference, that is why ethics and morality are anti-scriptural. They are anti-scriptural because you set up a framework that makes you the judge and jury. In scripture, if God wills it, it is just no matter what. If God wills it in Scripture, in the story, it's beyond reproach. Come on. It's literature. If God wills it, you have nothing to say about it. This mechanism is so important because as a mashal, it's a mashalic principle It teaches you in life how to view, how to receive difficulty and misfortune. When you face oppression, when you face suffering and difficulty, you can't do what everybody does in this culture and complain about how you're a victim and how hard you have it and how suffering is so deep and painful. Who cares? I said it recently to someone at St. Elizabeth in a homily, a personal homily, from the Amvon. Americans don't know what suffering is. Period. It's a didactic statement. Because all of you are going to take out your calculators and send me your statistical analysis of all the Americans who have suffered this year. I don't care. Because there's always somebody who suffers more. The issue isn't who suffers the most. The issue is that you're talking about your suffering instead of being scripturalized and accepting it as the will of God for you unto judgment and changing your ways. When something terrible happens, you can either complain and lash out, seek vengeance, and become a victim, or you can choose to accept it as the will of God 
unto edification and change your behavior. And if Jesus Christ can accept to be struck on the face by the right hand of power, by his own Father, if he can accept all of this as the will of his Father against him for the sake of the poor who mock him in Matthew, what are we complaining about? Now, if that's not a message that the Americans need to hear, I don't know what is, Rich. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. In simple terms, that means that at around noon, it was dark until about 3 p.m. Just to put it in context. When I was a kid, if it got dark during the middle of the day, that was exciting. We would run to the windows when they had windows that opened in schools before the insurance companies took over American institutions. Now, you can't have windows in schools. Someone might jump out of the window. Or worse, they might open a window and cause the air conditioning bill to go up. Anyways, I digress. Yeah, this darkness is, you know, it's in Joel 2.10, the earth shall quake before them, the heavens shall tremble, the sun and moon shall be dark, and the stars shall withdraw their shining. The next verse, though, is what's important. And the Lord shall utter his voice before his army, for his camp is very great, for he is strong that executeth his word. For the day of the Lord is great and very terrible, and who can abide it? This is the way that Matthew is presenting the day of the Lord is here. The day of the Lord is the death of his son and everything that goes along with it. The humiliation, the exposure, the mocking, and the cursed death of the cross. All of this is the day of the Lord when everything is going to happen. So if this is the day of the Lord, the Lord is uttering his voice before his army. There is nothing more effectual than a voice before an army. They have power to do anything on earth. He is strong that executeth his word. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, we've talked about this in the past. This is the title of a section in the Psalter, beginning with Psalm 22. And we touched on Psalm 22 already last week and its significance for this section of Matthew. But there's something else interesting happening here. There is, in fact, in this verse from the psalm, an acknowledgement that God has in fact forsaken his son. And in scripture, when God walks away and leaves you high and dry, and Father Paul talks about this in the rise of scripture, the absence of God in these moments when there is difficulty, and in this case, God willed the difficulty and then was not present to aid his son, 
in the hour of need. The absence of God in the time of judgment is in and of itself a test. It's a test of faithfulness. And we have to accept that absence as it stands at face value. And here, Robin Hood is something I've referred to often, Richard, over the years as a priest when trying to explain the kingdom and how it functions. You have the king missing from the land, and you have an imposter sitting on the throne. And there's chaos in the land, except on the property of the Maid Marian. Because while everyone else is running around trying to appease the Sheriff of Nottingham, the Maid Marian conducts her business as though King Richard is sitting on the throne. The absence of the king is a test of faithfulness towards his instruction, his headship in his absence. So this isn't about the psychology of Jesus. Did he doubt God? Was he questioning? And people will go on for three hours in a retreat exploring the inner life of Jesus, which is nonsensical. It's not about his inner life. It's about what the beloved of God, Daoud, wrote in the psalm. Jesus is quoting somebody else's words. But the words that he's quoting referred to this test because he submitted to his father, he drank the bitter cup of his father's will, and now his father is not coming to his rescue even though Jesus knows he could come to his rescue. And it's not a question of what's going on inside of Jesus as he's struggling. It's not a question of a struggle because he's already been faithful unto death. It's done. There's no struggle. This is critical because people theologize this and it's ridiculous. There is no struggle here. He is preaching the words of the prophet David. He is preaching the Psalter. He is not agonizing from within over the fact that God has abandoned him. He is preaching, and he is fulfilling this teaching that when the king is forsaken, it is the time of the test that he mentioned in his instruction about the prayer to the Father, the pirasmos. This is the time of the test. So critical, Richard, that we don't psychologize these texts and make them about our inner struggle with suffering and the deep meaning of the inner confusion we invent for ourselves when all we have to do is do what Scripture says and remain faithful to the end. And what we feel about it really isn't germane. We want to flip it around and not worry about what we're doing and talk about what we feel. And that's why everybody's confused. And that's why I don't mince words when I talk about it. We used to talk about putting people to confusion 
as what you do to your enemies. Now we do it to our friends with our nonsense. We put them to confusion. Jesus is not confused here. It's very clear where Jesus stands here. So why do we talk about him like he's confused? It's ridiculous. It's important to hear this verse in Psalm 22 in the context of Psalm 22 as well, because it begins with this idea that the speaker is being abandoned. But like we said, you know, what does one do when one realizes that it is because of God that we find ourselves in the situation we're in? At the end of this psalm, Psalm 22, verse 27, all the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord, and all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. Kindreds, it's King James, it should be tribes. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he is the governor among the nations. And then it ends, a seed shall serve him, it shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation, they shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he hath done this. It is a call for the one who is suffering to recognize that the one who brings suffering is the only one who can bring salvation. That is the declaration that Jesus makes here. Now, one thing that I've always found peculiar here is that he doesn't say it in Hebrew. In Hebrew, you don't say sabachthani, you say azavtani. It's a totally different word. Sabachthani is an Aramaic word. He's clearly speaking Aramaic and not Hebrew, which is funny because the biblical language is Hebrew. It's not that he didn't know the difference. He is speaking it in the words that the average Jew uses when they're going throughout their day at this time. Clearly, the writer who understands that the hearer may not be fluent in Aramaic translates it into Greek for us. But Jesus is speaking it without a translator. Only Matthew is the translator. Only the one who hears the text gets this little aside. People there don't get it. And we see that there are some people there who are ignorant of his Aramaic because they didn't understand what he was trying to say. They didn't know that he was calling out according to the psalm, and that was the thing that was missing. They didn't know he was calling out according to the psalm. He didn't say, oh no, God, help me. It wasn't just a throwaway thing. He was quoting scripture, as you said, Father. He was preaching and teaching until literally the very end. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.